If you have a Bible, we're heading back into Mark tonight. Be in Mark 14. We're going to look at two places in Mark because they kind of go together. Mark 14. And the, the title tonight is The Danger of Self-Reliance. It's the title of the message. We're going to look at Mark 14 beginning in verse 26. And it says, When they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crows twice, thou shalt deny me thrice, or three times. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with you, I will not deny you in any wise. And likewise also said they all. And then if you go to verse 66 near the end of the chapter, it's a long chapter, 72 verses, and it says, And as Peter was beneath in the palace, there came one of the maids of the high priest, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, And thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied, saying, I know not, neither understand what you say. And he went out into the porch, and the cock crew. And the maid saw him again, and began to say to them that stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again. And a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agrees thereto. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. And the second time the cock crew, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him, Before the cock crows twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought about that, he thought thereon, it says he wept. So when you read this story where Peter denied the Lord, denied knowing the Lord, he didn't just do it once, but he did it three times. And each time that he did it, it became more forceful, more emphatic than the previous one. It's really a sad state of affairs. Here's the Lord Jesus heading to the cross, becoming more and more isolated. Everybody's leaving him, forsaking him, and his best friend is denying that he even knows him. And the way that tragic tale ends is Peter is weeping bitterly, realizing what a wretched friend he is. That's the way it all ends. But I don't think the details of what happened here in this courtyard of the high priest, I don't think all these details that we have in this story are given to either discourage or to depress us. Think about it this way, like a man Eric Alexander said. He said, how do we even know the details of what happened? Who was the one that was there? Who's the one that's giving these details? So I don't know if you all remember, but back when we started this series on Mark, we said, where did Mark get all his information? Because he wasn't one of the 12. But he gives more insight, more detailed information than any of the other Gospels. He gives things that only somebody that was there would know. And what we know from church history is that Mark traveled with Peter. And Mark heard Peter preach all the time. He was friends. He was traveling with him. Peter would have given him all of these details. All this information that we have in these accounts are given from Peter himself. He wants this particular incident recorded, all of it recorded. Why? Because he wants us to learn from it so that we can be warned, warned, but not only warned, but also encouraged. Don't most people, most of us, we tend to, if we have a dark moment in our life, we tend to want to hide the dark times in our lives. But many times we need to see, and this is what's happening here with Peter, God uses those dark times that he has brought us through to do what? To encourage other people, doesn't he? I mean, it's a dark time for us at the time. It seems like a nightmare that is never going to end. But Jesus did. It's not here in this account with Mark, but in Luke's account, Luke 22, he said this to Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But he said, but I have prayed for you that thy faith fail not. And then he says this at the end. He says, but when you are converted, when you're turned, when you're brought back to me, then he says, strengthen thy brethren. And this was probably, I would imagine, some of the darkest, if not the darkest days of Peter's life, denying the Lord. And he probably felt like it was all over when he did that. I would think, how could Jesus ever want someone like him 
to ever be a follower or a disciple of his. And I think all of us, if you're honest, I think all of us to one degree or another have all felt like that at some point in our Christian life. We feel like failures. And we know that we just haven't lived like we should live. And then what happens? The Lord comes and he brings us back to him. It's he's the one that does that. It's never us. And he causes us to come back, return to him. And what does he do then? He many times, I've found this to be true in my own life. He'll use that experience that we went through and came out on the other side. And he'll have that experience that we went through. We can use that to encourage others. And he'll bring those others across our path in a lot of different ways is the way he did that. You know, yesterday, it just so happened, working on this message, I saw where there was a guy that was a... Muslim, an Iranian, was going to be speaking at the chapel over at Southern Seminary, and then afterwards they were going to have an hour and a half thing on how to witness to Muslims, and I thought, well, I'd be real curious to hear that and hear how that went. So at the Seminary Chapel, he had a message, but he interspersed his testimony in with it. So he was saying how he had Iranian parents. He grew up in Houston till he was two years old. Then his parents moved back to Iran, and this was in the late 70s. And they get over there and they live there for six years. And then the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power in the Iranian Revolution. And his dad was a doctor. For whatever reason, they had to flee Iran. They came back to the United States. So they moved back to Houston. And by this time, he's six, or six to eight years old, whatever. And they're moving back there thinking, his family, they're thinking, well, we can have refuge in the U.S. And instead, because of all the Iranian hostage crisis here, people in this country were paranoid of people that were of foreign descent, especially Iranians. So he said him and his brother, they go to school, they're in grade school, and they're getting shot with BB guns by the high school students. He said they'd have rocks thrown through their windows at home. They got a lot of persecution. So here, the place in the U.S., they thought they would get refuge. They didn't get any refuge. Well, what happened, he said, was, and this is what I thought was interesting, and this was one thing they talked about in the group discussion thing afterwards over at another building. As they said, you know, we tend to, if you get into the press and you hear all these things they're saying about all these foreigners, especially Muslims, you can tend to hate them and be afraid of them. And he said, what happened to him? He was a Muslim at the time he moved back. His whole family was. But he said that when he was eight years old, he was in second grade, that one of his tutors that was teaching him English, he didn't know English, gave him a New Testament as a gift, a Christian. And he said he held on to that. I don't know, he must have had to hide it. But he held on to it and he said it was 10 years later when he was 18 years old, he began to read the New Testament through. He said he got to Romans chapter 3 and he said God by his spirit supernaturally opened up his eyes because he said for the first time in his life he clearly saw that he was a sinner, going to perish, and that salvation was given through the Lord Jesus Christ. And on his own, as an 18-year-old, he gave his heart and got saved. But guess what? His dad said, you're out of here. His whole family disowned him. You're out of this house. This happened in America. We think that happens over there. No, this happened down in Houston, Texas. He said, you're out of here. I disown you. So he said, for 26 years, him and his dad have not basically had a relationship. And that's been the price that he's had to pay for being a Christian. One thing he said that I thought was good was, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if the resurrection isn't true, then we are of most men most miserable. Because he said, if it isn't true, if eternal life isn't true, then he said, well, I've wasted 26 years. He liked his dad. 26 years, I have not had a relationship with my father. But he said, now his dad's got Alzheimer's. And he said, some reason, he goes, I don't understand this, but this Alzheimer's has dropped down those Muslim barriers. And when I share the, the scriptures with him, he listens now. And all that. He goes, so you ask me. He said, so for 26 years, I lost that relationship from, with my dad. But he said, when Jesus saves him and I've got all eternity to spend with him, what difference does it make? That really spoke to me. He would still preach Jesus to his family. The point I'm getting to and saying, this is what he said, though, that I think fits in with what we're talking about, where sometimes you go through a dark period and God will use that like he did with Peter. So he said he went through a period in his Christian life where he was just messed up. He wasn't walking with the Lord like he should. He said his girlfriend at the time broke up with him, which he said later became his wife. So that all worked out. But he just said he was a mess. But he was just really struggling. And he was struggling with his ministry. But he said that the only thing that got him through that period was he held on to the word of God. He said he would pray the Psalms. 
And somehow God got him through that. What happened was he started having these anxiety attacks. Started having these anxiety attacks, couldn't sleep. Said he was a mess. And he said, that's when he said, praying the Psalms, he just holding on to that was the only thing that got him through. He said that was something he never talked about. He was embarrassed about that dark period in his life. Two years later, he's teaching a class. He taught at college. He said his older brother calls him up and he says, Abshin, he said, I remember that you went through these anxiety attacks and somehow you got through them. He said, I'm having terrible anxiety attacks. It just started up. He's, his son, he was having trouble with his job. His job was falling apart. His son was autistic. He said, can you tell me how you got through those? And so Afshin said, I'm right in the middle of class. I'll call you back. Well, really what he wanted to do was a Christian class. He asked all his students, he said, can you pray for my brother before I call him back? Called up his sister. His sister had been converted through his testimony. Calls her up and he said, can you be praying? I'm going to call him back. Can you be praying? And she tells him, she goes, Afshin, tell him about Jesus. And he's like, duh. It's kind of funny. He says, you know what? But here's actually the thought I had when she said that. He said, I've shared Jesus with him so many times and it never makes a difference. What's going to make the difference now? And he said he got convicted about that. He said the Lord convicted him and dealt with him and he asked the Lord to forgive him. And he said, you know what? Maybe this is my brother's time. Maybe this is the time you're going to deal with him. He says, what would you have me to say to him? And he said, as clear as day, the Lord gave him four verses to share with his brother. Philippians 4, 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your needs be known unto God and the peace of God. He shared that with him. He shared, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He shared the verse where Jesus was in the boat and he spoke to the storm at sea and said, peace be stilled, and it obeyed. And he also shared with him the verse that we know, Matthew 6, 33, take no thought for tomorrow. For tomorrow will take thought of itself. He shared those four verses. Those are the four verses, anyways, that the Lord gave him. So he said he calls his brother up. All right, what's going on? What's happening with you? And the brother tells him his story. And Afshin tells him, he says, bro, until you get your heart right with Jesus, he says, you'll never have peace. And his brother's like, yeah, whatever. I've heard that before. So Afshin tells him, he says, okay, he says, well, I just, the Lord gave me four verses of scripture to share with you. Can, can I share them with you? And his brother says, all right, go ahead. And so he said, he shares those four verses of scripture and he said his brother crumbles. He breaks down and he just says, I need Jesus. This is the way he told the story. There might've been more to it than this. I don't know. He says, I need Jesus. He says, what do I do? What do I need to do? And Afshin's like, I'm an evangelist. He goes, that's the best question somebody could ask me. He said, I was so shocked that my brother said that. He goes, I didn't know what to tell him. He goes, I didn't know what to say. What do I need to do? He finally got hold of himself. And he says, well, the Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he said he, his brother didn't ask him to lead him through a prayer or anything else. He said his brother over the phone, he just says, Jesus, save me. And his brother got saved right then. Amen. The point I want to make is that God will take a lot of times those dark times in our lives, the times, like I said, when they seem like nightmares that will never end. They do, though, because he is the one praying for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we get through him, he teaches us of his love for us. And then he enables us to share that with others that have the same need. And that's a case right there. That opened up that door to minister to his own brother, which I thought was a blessing. And like I said, God will bring them to us because, like he said to Peter, when you are converted, when you're turned back around, and there's some things that had to happen to Peter through all of what he went through. He was broken. He was humbled. He wasn't the same man. If Peter had stayed the way he was and Jesus hadn't broken him and brought him back and put him through that experience to where he's weeping bitterly, realizing his pride of, this is who I am, Lord, I'll never leave you, and realizing, you're nothing, Peter. We wouldn't have wanted to read his writings. But the Peter we have in First and Second Peter, he's a changed person, isn't he? Yeah, amen. Something we can learn from there. And like we said Sunday, David is another case of that. God allowed him to fall, not just to humble his pride, even though it did that, just like with Peter, did a work in them, but also so that David could help others. You know, the Bible doesn't hide the warts, does it? Because we got warts, and we need help with our warts. And he picks prominent people. Peter is one of the most prominent people in the New Testament. The rock. And David, the man after God's own heart, the king of Israel. 
Doesn't hide anything about what he did in his sin, does it? We talked about some of Psalm 51 Sunday, but he went on to say Psalm 51 verses 10 to 13. David wrote, we sing this song, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. And he says, and then, when that happens, when I'm turned back around, have back that joy of my salvation, he says, then will I teach transgressors thy ways. And sinners, David said, shall be converted unto thee. He says, because I can share my experience with them that no, there is no pit, there is no hole, there is no sin you've committed that God won't raise you up from that. If you cry out for mercy, he'll have mercy on you. And David said that's what he did. Sinners would be converted unto him. So I'm saying we can take encouragement from this, what we read about with Peter. Because God looked at David, he looked at Peter, and he looks at us. And you think about it, Peter was a mess. I think he knew that. Peter knew that. You're a mess, Simon. You'll be sifted. Not, you're not going to be a rock. You're going to get sifted like sand. But my confession is about you. I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. You're not a rock now, he's telling him, but after I'm through with you, you will be. And that should be an encouragement to us. No matter how much of a mess we are, no matter how many times we backslid, if you've repented and God's brought you back, he's looking at you not like the mess, is he? And that's the encouragement we can take from that. If he did it for Peter, he'll do it. For me and you, won't he? Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the promise that we have. He's begun a good work in you. He'll finish it. And we could trust in that. The purpose of him having this full account of Peter here, it's quite a bit of words used, is to warn and to encourage. And as one New Testament scholar said, the reason that God has given us this story is, number one, that all may fear. We can't ever take it for granted that we're going to, because we have willpower, we're going to make it. I'm going to talk about that a little more. That all may fear, and also that none may presume. And thirdly, though, that all may hope. That all may fear, that none may presume, and that all may hope. But you think about this, Peter's fall didn't happen overnight, did it? His collapse didn't just happen all at once. It was waiting to happen. Brother Hamilton would say this, and it's true. It's just, it's just true. Nobody just wakes up one day and decides they're going to backslide, do they? That just doesn't happen that way. There's a pattern. And generally, the Bible reading stops. Your prayer stops. The cross becomes unattractive to you. The crucified life, because it's like, why am I going to die when there is so much to live for, so much to see, so much to do, so much to enjoy? And that's what happens. You start heading down the enjoyment path instead of the crucified life path and the self-discipline path. There were signs of that early on in Mark 8. If you remember, Peter makes his great confession. You remember that? Mark 8, Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus praised Peter for it, didn't he? He said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John. Blessed art thou. You didn't get that from earth, you got it from heaven. In other words, God's blessing you. And I'm sure Peter's chest, it swelled with pride. <laughs> blessed art thou, Simon, and all that. He liked that. Glad you're seeing things my way, Lord, finally. You know, that's probably how he looked at it. But then right after that, when Jesus started talking about his suffering and death, you know what it says Peter did? He takes him aside. Can you imagine that? He grabs Jesus and takes him aside and starts telling him, wait a minute, that's not going to happen to you. Far be it from thee, Lord, that this shall happen unto thee. You know what happens? He forgot who the Lord was. He's lecturing Jesus. Peter is. Doesn't like the cross. Doesn't want to go to the cross. And I've read this somewhere that some people, they're willing to serve God but only as his consultant. And that's what Peter's like. He's his consultant, isn't he? I'm going to give you some advice, Jesus. I mean, man, if you think about it like that, that's like pretty incredible, pretty amazing. 
The bottom line is, with what we're saying is, we have got to have, which Peter didn't have at this point, a mindset that we're going to die out to our flesh. Because if we don't, we are in danger of denying our Lord under pressure. And that is why Jesus told them in the garden. He knew what was coming. He saw it clearly. They didn't. But he said, Simon, speaking to Peter, the one that had made all the boast, sleepest thou? Are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? He says, watch ye and pray lest you enter into temptation. He said, the spirit is truly willing or ready, but the flesh is weak. And here's what we have to see is our flesh gives us no power over temptation at all. There is no power within our flesh to fight temptation and sin. You know where it's found? It's only found in prayer. It's found in prayer. And Peter learned that. So if you would, put something there, turn back to 1 Peter 4. And in 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 1, this is what he's saying. He's saying, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, he's saying, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, or that really could be intent or purpose. So we have to have that same intention to suffer in the flesh. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's Romans 6. That he no longer should live, this should be our purpose, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it's strange, they think it's out of character, that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, and they speak evil of you, who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the living and the dead. But look down in verse 7. So we're saying Peter knows what it takes to overcome the flesh. He says, but the end of all things, verse 7, is at hand. Be ye therefore what? Sober, that means to curb your passions, and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. You, when you allow your consecration to God, your intent, your purpose to crucify your flesh and to keep yourself dedicated to Him and to watch and pray, when you allow that to back off, you may not notice initially any big change in your life, but it happens slowly. Just like growth happens slowly, so does a decline in your spiritual character happens slowly. It doesn't just happen overnight. And the way it shows up is one day when the strong wind, that strong trial blows through, you find out, wait a minute, there was a problem. The foundation had begun to crumble and I didn't even know it. You know, we lived on Shady Lane Farms. That big, beautiful trees, you drive up that lane, it's just a gorgeous drive. The trees, for the most part, these things look healthy. There's green leaves. Everything looks great. And one time we had a huge storm come through one weekend. We were getting ready to go out of town. Well, that storm, those winds, all of a sudden we got about three or four big trees that are down over the road. We can't get out. But you would have never known it to look at them because they're decaying on the inside. And that's what happens. It's slowly over time. It's taking place, but all it takes is that big wind and blows them down. One time I had a scaffold set up on this roof. The problem was, instead of using nails that long, I only used nails about that long into the roof, okay? So I got up on that scaffold. Everything was fine. I couldn't tell a thing was wrong, and I moved three or four or five times. I don't know if I got down, got back up on it. But all of a sudden, I got on one end, and that thing, it just out of nowhere collapsed. Like Peter, it just collapsed. But did it really just collapse? Those things just didn't have too far, but they're slowly working their way up out of there slowly. What seemed like a collapse had been happening. I just wasn't aware of it. We're saying that's what happens. That's the danger we need to be aware of. Sneaks up on us. We don't watch and pray. How many of us can say we know a difference when you're praying, when you come to a meeting prayed up, or you come into your day prayed up, and when you just kind of go out into your day. And what happens when that happens? Too many times, all these unexpected trials come your way, and you know you're ill-equipped to handle them. You're not ready for them. And that's what happened to Peter, and that's what happens to us, and that's what we need to take heed of. So the next thing, we'll go back to Mark 14, is there's three prophecies that are given here in this chapter 14. 
And look what it says in verses 27 and 28. And Jesus said unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. There's three prophecies, two from Jesus, and one comes from Zechariah 13, 7. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd. And so Jesus has modified, if you actually go back and read where that verse is taken from, Zechariah 13, 7, he's modified a little bit because in Zechariah, it's the Lord calling for the sword to be raised and to be used to smite his shepherd. But Jesus is saying, it's God himself saying, I will smite the shepherd. God says he will do it himself. And what does that tell us? That tells us for number one that Jesus does not consider himself to be a victim because he knows that it is God the Father that is smiting him. This is no accident. He's not a victim. Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now there is a teaching that's been around, is coming back to be popular, that Jesus was the victim of a cruel father. You know, they call it cosmic child abuse. And I'm saying that is not the case. Jesus came to this earth to die for us because he wanted to. He was not pushed out of heaven onto earth by the Father. He wasn't pushed down like, what am I doing? I really didn't want to come kicking and screaming. No, he came willingly and laid down his life just like Isaac did for his father. Didn't he? For Abraham. He wasn't fighting, kicking and screaming. And that's the way it was with Jesus. They are in total harmony. God is one nature, not divided up. But his love for us is no different than the Father's love. And I just would like us to look at this, if you would, turn to Hebrews 2. Even though it says, I will smite the shepherd, the shepherd was willingly smitten, is the point. And so if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, And it says this, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. God has given us to Jesus is what it's saying there in verse 13. He says, and for as much then as the children, the ones that God is going to give to Jesus are partakers of flesh and blood. He also himself likewise took part of the same that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. That is the only way the devil could be destroyed. On our behalf was the Lord Jesus Christ because we're his children and he loves us. We're his brothers. That's the only way he could rescue us is to become one of us. In verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death, which I was, I was afraid to die, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily, truly, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliations for the sins of the people, for that he himself has suffered being tempted. He's able to succor or help them that are tempted. And praise God for that. He willingly came to help us. He looked down and saw us, and he said, I'll go down there. They're my brothers. I'm going to rescue them from death. It can't happen any other way. I will take on flesh and blood to rescue those that are of flesh and blood. You go back to Mark 14. What Jesus is telling them, his disciples here in those two verses is that the prophecies given, that he is the shepherd, God the Father has to smite, the shepherd has to be smitten so that the sheep can live. And he's the good shepherd, isn't he? Willing to lay down his life for the sheep. But he's saying, all of this has been God's plan from eternity past, prophesied all through the Old Testament. And he's telling them, this is coming to pass tonight. That's the changes he makes. It's being unfolded and rolled out right before your eyes, fellas, tonight. Because look what he says there in verse 27. You shall all be offended because of me when... This night, because it is written, and it's he's saying it's going to happen this night. I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. And then he says, that's fulfilled. And he says, I'm also going to rise from the dead 
This is another prophecy. You're all going to be gathered back to me again. Because Galilee is where he gathered his disciples to him. And Galilee, when he's risen again, is where they're going to be gathered again. And so there's a word of hope in this prophecy, isn't there? If they just miss it. And Peter definitely misses it. Because there's a word of hope and repentance here. He's saying you're going to be scattered, but you're going to be gathered back to me. Word of hope there. Notice he tells them that they're all going to be offended. And that word offended means to be caught in a trap, to be ensnared, to stumble and fall down. And let me ask you, who is the one that's setting the trap? Who is the great hunter of our souls? Satan. Satan. No doubt about it, is there? Satan is the one. Doesn't take a day off. Doesn't take a vacation. We may go on vacations spiritually, but he doesn't. And Peter learned that the hard way. Peter never thought that he would be the one. Never thought he would be the one found in Satan's snares, did he? Because look what he says in verse 29. Peter said to him, although all shall be offended, he says, yet will not I. It's not going to be me. And he had his foot caught in the devil's trap before the night was over after making that bold statement. So he's warning us. He warns us after he gets through all that, doesn't he? Don't let your guard down. I did. And he's like, I paid for it. And so what does he write to us in 1 Peter 5? Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He's saying, I can tell you that from firsthand experience. I went through all that. He about devoured me. And Jesus taught us to pray what? In the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but what? But deliver us from the evil. It should be the evil one. And he's saying we should pray that daily because he is daily laying snares for us, just waiting for us. And if we neglect that, we're going to be like Peter. He neglected the prayer, couldn't stay awake. And guess what happened? He got caught. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak. And we move on in verses 29 to 31. Peter also demonstrates clearly to us the danger of self-reliance. Look what it says. After Jesus says what's going to happen, he makes those prophecies. But Peter said unto him, although all shall be offended, he says, yet I won't. No, not me. And Jesus said unto him, wait a minute, truly. Now this should have caught his attention. If Jesus says truly, it's going to happen. He says, truly I say unto you that this day, even this night before the cock crows twice, not only this day and this night, you're going to do it three times. Thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently. If I should die with you, I will not deny you in any wise. And all of the rest of them joined in with him. And I'm telling you, Peter's pride and his trust in his own commitment, his trust in his own commitment is what led to his downfall. So when Jesus said that you all will be offended, Peter's response shouldn't have been, well, maybe that's true for the rest of these guys. They probably are weak in that way. But it's not true for me. I'll never be the one to go back on you, Lord. You can count on me. He should have never said that after Jesus said that, should he? You know what? When you read Luke's account, you know part of why I think brought all that out? You know what these guys were doing before he said that? They were arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And I guarantee you, Peter won that argument, probably. And so he's the one that's going to stand up. Look, I already said I'm the greatest. I'm, I'm the Muhammad Ali of this group. And he's like, they can all say they're leaving, but not me, because I'm the greatest. I'm with you, Lord. And that was his downfall, right? That's the trouble. I'll die before I'll leave you. That was his trouble. So listen, our will is involved in our faith, but not our will power. So we'd better not trust in our willpower to get us through. That's what Peter's doing here, isn't he? Trusting in his willpower. Peter did that and failed. So what's the lesson? We should never have faith in our faith. Never trust in our own ability. Does that mean that we can't know what we'll do if we're tempted, say, to lie? We can't say, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't think it's saying that. It means, though, when that temptation comes, we're going to look to the Lord to help us. 
in time of temptation, not to our own commitment and willpower. You see, that's the mistake he made. He kept saying, not I, I won't leave you. I've got a commitment. I've got what I am not leaving you. He left big time. He fell probably the deepest and the furthest than anybody saying all that. So there's never an excuse to sin. We can't say I couldn't help myself. The answer to temptation is not to say, I don't know what I would do, but I will look to Jesus for help. That's the answer. And Peter never did that. He thought his resolve was enough. And we sing this song. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Who is faithful? Are we the ones that are faithful? Is it us? What does this song say? God is faithful. We're only faithful as he's faithful to us. I mean, our faithfulness to him comes from him. It's God that works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. We can't take any credit for that. And who makes the way of escape? Do we make our way of escape? Is it our wisdom and power that teaches us how to deal with temptation? It says God makes the way of escape. We have to trust him and not ourselves. And too many times, I've done this, I don't know how many times, you try to work your own way through something instead of looking to him, instead of praying to him when you lose something. But that's the way it is. You've got to trust him. And just think about this. There is not one word from Peter, you reread this, there is not one word from Peter asking Jesus to help him to not deny him. Instead, what does he do? Once again, he argues with the Lord, argues with him. He should have fallen on his knees and said, God, please don't let that be me. But instead, he's like, oh, no, well, you're saying that Who? you're saying that about me. I'm willing to die for you, Lord. And, you know, you think about it. Here's another one of those cases when you see the patience of Jesus. He doesn't climb all over him like, Peter, you realize who you're talking to? He doesn't say anything like that, does he? So what does the scripture say that we're to do when we're struggling to believe or overcome temptation or to overcome sin? What does the Bible teach us to do? Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 15 and 16, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities or our weaknesses. He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Because of that, because he knows he's been through whatever you've been through. Nothing you've been through he hasn't been through. He says, Let us therefore, because of that, come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the answer. Not to say, man, I'm just going to grip my teeth. and I'm tougher than that. No, you're not. None of us are. Dale Bruner said this. He says, we are much weaker than we think, even when we know our devotion is strong. And that is true. We are much weaker than we think, even when we know our devotion is strong. In a comparable way, in the power of the Spirit, disciples are much stronger than they think. When we have the power of the Spirit, we can do things we really don't think we can do. You ever been in a trial where you think, man, I don't think I'm holding on any longer. And you cry out for God's grace and help. And it's like Bunyan says, you can't see it, but he's shoveling in that grace through the power of the Spirit, enabling you to take that next step that you didn't really think you possibly could take. It's not your strength. It's because you cried out to him and he's faithful. We just said it. Grace and mercy and grace to help in time of need. He will give it to us when we need it. He went on to say this. Disciples in the spirit and the power of the spirit stronger than they think. In the presence of scripture's hard text, the disciples should fall down before the Lord and say, I'm sorry that this is so. Please help me to live in the power of your forgiveness and spirit. For the Lord resists the proud like Peter, but he gives grace to whom? The humble. I thought there are three words that are true for all saints throughout the Bible. And you know what those three words are? Who am I? And that's the attitude we should have. Not, I will never, but who am I? The Lord appeared to Moses and he says, who am I? That I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who am I? 
And he had been ready to take over Egypt as a son of Pharaoh's daughter at one time. But God had brought him to a place in humility to where he's like, I can't even talk, let alone lead a group of people out of there. Gideon, oh Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, he says, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. You're telling me I'm a mighty man of valor? I am not a mighty man of valor. I'm sitting here hiding, threshing this wheat, hoping they don't find me. And you're telling me I'm going to deliver all these people? Who am I? And David says, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Have you ever felt like that? Who am I? You look at people that have fallen away, not just left, but I mean, they've left and gone back into sin through all the 30 some years or however many years you've been a Christian. I know a lot of people, they got away from the Lord, they're back into sin. And you look at yourself and you think of all the times that could have happened to you, or I look at myself, who am I that God has had his hand on me and brought me back to repentance at times, brought me through those nightmare situations. Peter would have been like later, who am I that I didn't end up like Judas? And the only reason is because of what? The Lord was praying for him. So the bottom line is, Paul sums up Peter's dilemma and ours, and it's this. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Amen? Amen. That's the warning we get from this. So you look on, and the words of this prophecy of Jesus are fulfilled. In verses 66 through 72, and it says, And when Peter was beneath in the palace, there comes one of the maids of the high priest. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, Well, you also were with Jesus as Nazarene. It's, she's saying it derisively. They didn't like those people up north. Why do the people from the south not like the people from the north? I've never figured that out. Just kind of one of those common things. Like, maybe they're arrogant up north, I guess, Okay. Not as laid back, probably. But he denied, saying, I know not, neither understand what you say. Neither understand I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he went out into the porch and the cock crew. And the maid saw him again and began to say to them that stood by, this is one of them. And he denied it again. And a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, surely you are one of them. You're a Galilean. Your speech betrays you. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak, and the second time the cock crew. You know, it's interesting if you look, if you look back in verse 65 before we started in verse 66, they're mocking Jesus about being a prophet. You say you're a prophet, they've got him blindfolded, and they're smacking him on the face, and they're mocking him. Well, then tell us who just did that, laughing and mocking him. And then the whole time that's going on, you read verses, his prophecy is coming fulfilled to the letter. Everything he ever said came fulfilled to the letter, and they're mocking him over that. I just thought that's kind of ironic. There's a progression here to Peter's denial. He gets himself into such a can of worms that he can't get out of it and just makes things worse. What I think happened is he got caught off guard and having to defend his loyalty to Jesus in the courtyard. I think he was ready to do it with the mob. Cut off the high priest's ear, pulled out his sword. He's ready for a fight there. Got everybody around him. I think if they'd have drug him in front of the Sanhedrin, he'd have probably been, I'm going to take a stand. But here he is in the courtyard. He's not really ready for this. And this little girl, two little girls, are the ones that bring the accusation, kind of catch him off guard. Wasn't ready for that. And isn't it the courtyard? I think if they drug us before a court, we might be all right. But isn't it in the courtyard, the everyday circumstances of life, that our confession and our discipleship are tested every day? Everyday circumstances of life, at work, at school, with a group of kids, if you're a woman at the hairdressers or with the neighbors, that's the way we're tested. And that's the way we prove ourselves. And that's where a lot of times we can get caught off guard, can't we? And that's when the temptations come. There's a threefold increase in the intensity of Peter's denial. First, it starts off with one maid. Then it's another maid speaking to a group of people. Then it's the whole group of people coming against Peter. Can't handle that. And then his denials increase. First, he just says he pleads ignorance. Well, I, just, I don't even know what you're talking about. 
And that's the first lie he tells, isn't it? Wasn't as big and as serious as the other ones, but it's a lie. And once you start telling one, guess what? You're going to have to start telling more. As it's the old saying goes, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Isn't that what happens? The next thing you know, he denies knowing Jesus. You have to get this out of Matthew's account, not Mark's. Denies knowing him, and he adds an oath to it. I swear to God, I don't know him. And then last, he denies it even more passionately. And when it says cursing, I always thought it meant he used curse words. That's not what he was doing. He was saying, I'll be cursed. Curse me is what he was doing if what I'm telling you is not true because I swear to God on Almighty God that he's doing what Jesus said he shouldn't do. But that's what he's doing, calling down curses on himself if he's lying and he's swearing. That's what he's doing. Swearing to God, he's telling the truth. And the last thing is, he's moving physically further away from the Lord. It says he comes and he sits in the courtyard and he actually sees bold enough eventually. He doesn't know these people. And some of them had to be there when he cut off the ear and all that. Sits down in the fire in the middle of the courtyard. They had taken Jesus up to a second floor room. Because it says he was beneath in the courtyard. That's how those houses would have been constructed. And this was a nice house here. Had a big, huge courtyard with a gate leading into it. He's there. They make a fire. The servants, they weren't needed at the time. They're all sitting around there. Peter's right in there with them. The first accusation, but then after the the little girl, you were one of those. Uh Uh-oh. He gets up and leaves that, and it says he goes over to the doorway. He's ready to make a quick exit if he has to. That's what it says. He's at the doorway next, getting away from the light of the fire, getting away from all those. One of those girls, something's happening. Somebody's following him. No, I know you're one. Tells the people around. He's one of them. And next thing you know, Peter's out the door. Says he's outside weeping bitterly. He's doing physically what he was doing in his soul. He's distancing himself from the Lord. With each denial, with each movement, with everything that's happening there, he's distancing himself from the Lord till he's out the door. But the account ends with the word of repentance, though. It ends on a good note. Look in verse 72. And the second time the cock crew, Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him, before the cock crow twice, you will deny me three times. And look what it says at the end. And when he thought about that, it says he wept. And the cock crowing, it, it said earlier that it had crowed once, and it's almost like it didn't have any effect on him. But that second one woke him up. It's like the voice of John the Baptist crying, repent, in his ear, calling him to repentance. And it says in Luke's account that right after that cock crowed the second time, that the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of Peter met. This is before he broke down crying. And what do you think he saw? What do you think he saw in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ when he looked at him? You think he saw Jesus, his eyes were filled with anger and hatred because he denied him? I don't think so. I truly believe that the Lord would have looked at him with sorrow, but also compassion. I think that's what he would have seen. I think he would have seen true concern from an older brother because Jesus knew what was going to happen. And he said, I'm going to pray for you because you're going to be sifted like wheat. He knows what he's going through and what he's going to be going through. And I think that look he gave Peter is what broke his heart. It wasn't a look of anger or he might have gone out and ended up like Judas. But he didn't speak to him. He didn't say a word, did he? Didn't need to. Didn't need to say anything. That look would have said it all. And it's a look that Peter never forgot, apparently. Matthew Henry says that the ancients said that as long as Peter lived, he never heard a cock crow that it didn't make him weep. Brought it all back to him, what he had done. I think Peter saw his own heart. When Jesus looked at him, he saw in his own heart what it really was, what his own heart really was, because he understood, he's seeing Jesus, that this man... God, my Messiah, my Savior, he is faithful and true. And Jesus gave him that look, and Peter would have realized, I am only concerned for myself and not my friend, not the one I really love, and I'm devious. Not only that, I'm devious about it. And would have brought him true shame. The New King James says that he broke down when he had that look and wept. Luke tells us that he went outside 
and wept bitterly. Wouldn't you do that if you, you love your wife, you guys get along good, and you betrayed her, and she gave you that look right as she's being carried away? I mean, that would have to break your heart if you had a good relationship, that you did that. And I think Peter saw Jesus in a way he'd never seen him before, a new revelation, a look of love and forgiveness where there should have been anger and resentment. That's what he should have seen, shouldn't he? That's what most people would have given him. And it broke his heart. But the thing is, I don't think his weeping was weeping of despair, was it? That was the beginning of his repentance because he was never the same, was he? From there on out, that's where his repentance began, right there. And in two months from that date, he is boldly preaching on the day of Pentecost to see 3,000 souls saved. He's not ashamed of his Savior then. He's brought how many times before the council? Don't you ever preach in this name? Can't help it. It's the only name whereby men will be saved. I can't keep quiet. You can beat me. You can do whatever you want to to me. I'm not ashamed of this anymore, of his name. And that's true repentance. It wasn't like he wept and bitterly and then just kept turning around doing it. No, there's true repentance and there's the fruit of it. We see it in his life. So let's learn a lesson from Peter tonight. What do we see here? There's a grave danger of relying on our own resolve, our own commitment, our own strength on what we can do. We're seeing there's a grave danger in that because that is going to guarantee a fall, isn't it? To have that kind of attitude. So our only hope is what? We've got to trust in the keeping power of Christ, don't we? And rely on His Spirit, His might, His power. And how do we tap into that? How do you tap into His keeping power and spirit? Through prayer. Those that wait upon the Lord, they shall renew their strength. That's how it comes. But we also learn something else from Him. If we do fall, if we do, that there is forgiveness, isn't there? With our Lord Jesus Christ. He may remind us of our failure to trust Him. I think that was in that look. But He's also is going to pick us up. And just like the shepherd does with the lamb that is lost, put us on His shoulders and carry us back home. Amen? How many times has He done that? Because just like John Abild has his restoration workshop, Jesus has His spiritual restoration workshop. Amen. And aren't we thankful for that? Well, let's pray. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the example that you've given us here of Peter and his willingness to write about all that happened, Lord, so that we can learn from that, Father, because we see ourselves so much in Peter, the inconsistencies, the pride, the bluster. And we ask you, Lord, that you'll cause us to have humble hearts that are willing to look to you and trust in you and to know that that you are our source of strength and that you will see us through. And we thank you, Lord, that you'll do that. And we thank you, Lord, that you don't cast us off because we failed once or twice, but many times we failed, Lord, and you are there to pick us up. A righteous man can fall seven times, but God will pick him up. And we thank you for that, that that's the way you are, God of great mercy. And so we ask you to make that real in our hearts tonight and that we not presume upon your mercy, Lord, but that we can walk faithfully with you in your strength and in your power. And I thank you that you'll show us that in Jesus' name. Amen.